0: morning. Before we begin this morning and in light of the news, big news of this past week, I want to just take a moment to pray as a church. Join me as we pray. Our God and Father, we take a moment this morning to acknowledge your sovereignty in all things, in the affairs of this world and in the details of our personal lives as we celebrate the moral good of fewer abortions in our country and we hope step toward a culture that honors the sanctity and dignity of every life, we acknowledge, too, the hopelessness that is present with so many women who find themselves with unplanned pregnancies in our country. Help us to be a people at a church who does more to love and care for the most vulnerable around us. Forgive us where we have failed and restore us to being a people that reflect not our agenda, but yours to the spiritually lost all around us. Heal our nation and start with us. May your love and light shine through us before others that your name may be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are this morning, if you have been here through the month of June, finishing this series that we started. And we've reached sort of the end of this discussion or this dialogue that Jesus has had, famous dialogue or famous discourse with this man named Nicodemus. Now, in it, this is by way of of quick uh, summary, we've learned the deep human need for a new birth. That all people have. That's where this started four weeks ago or three weeks ago. The deep human need that all people have, whoever you are, for a new birth, even for very religious people. Which was the point of Nicodemus being sort of the the person we're talking to here. All people need this deep spiritual birth. Second, we've learned of the great love of a father who didn't just emotionally love people or love the world and do nothing about it but who gave his, as we'll see, one and only son as a sacrifice uh, for our sins. Third, we learn about the miracle of human trust, the goal to which all the gift giving in this passage and really in the gospel message is directed. Finally, here this morning, we have, as we end this sermon, uh, as we end this series, we have a warning to all people and a renewed invitation to everyone, not only to believe in Jesus, but to live our lives in a way that helps point people who don't know him to God. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In the great Nicodemus sermon, you, could, you might say, the vocabulary of the gospel Has been set. I think that's one of the reasons it's here in the opening chapters of the gospel, John chapter 3. In the great Nicodemus sermon, why is this here? The vocabulary of the gospel has been set. So the sermon we're going to look at today is called, the title is A Great Choice. We're back where we were last Sunday, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. Follow along as I read. I think this passage, this sort of conclusion of the great Nicodemus dialogue tells us with Jesus is, Jesus came to a lost and troubled world. Jesus came to a lost and troubled world. This more serious talk, if you listen closely to these verses we just read, you know, the word condemned, evil, darkness, seems like a sort of a strange way to end this great sermon about the love of God, right? It's a strange way to do it. But when you stop to think about it, and I think that's what Jesus is trying to encourage Nicodemus to do, what John is trying to encourage his listeners to do, and what I'm trying to encourage us to do, when you stop and think about it, it actually makes very good sense that Jesus came to a lost and troubled place world, that he ends this sermon about the great love of God with a reality check about the world into which God has sent his son. If you've ever been to a jewelry store, I'm sure most of us have, and, and you go to a jewelry store, even today, and you will see that the, the, um, when it comes to, let's say, the most precious jewels at a jewelry store, perhaps diamonds especially, they're often laid out on a piece of black Um, velvet or a very dark piece of material. And the reason they do that is obvious because they want to, um, by contrast, it shows the brightness and the brilliance of the stone. In a manner of speaking, that's what John is doing here with the gospel in the context of the world. God did not send, it's a little theology here, God did not send his son into the world to save some and condemn others. That's the theology some people have. God didn't send his son into the world to save some and to condemn others. He sent his son into the world to save as many as possible in a world that is already stands condemned, already under the judgment of God, you might say, before Jesus Christ was ever born in a manger in Bethlehem, okay? That's important to know. Jesus came to a lost and troubled world. What you have here. In these final verses, why I thought it was worthy for a whole sermon, you know the, the last few verses, eighteen through twenty-one. What you have here is a worldview, and I want you to ask yourself in the remaining minutes we have: Is it your worldview? Is it my worldview? I I I I I suggest to you, I submit to you, it's the Bible's worldview. Okay? What you have here is a worldview. Jesus came to a lost and troubled world. God did not send his son into the world, you know, kind of willy nilly save some, condemn others, bring the good, you know, uh, let go of the bad, whatever uh, we might think. He sent his world a son into a rescue mission in a world that already the lights were already out. Okay? It's condemned already. It's a worldview, but it is not a worldview. Jesus came to a lost and troubled world. It is not a worldview that is shared by the media. It's not a worldview that's shared by the academy or for large part the school systems of our our country. It is not even a worldview that's shared sadly by um, the majority of the church of Jesus Christ. This worldview No one is born, the Bible says to us here at other places, no one is born a Christian. Right? That's kind of the whole point. Um, You know, there's a lot of stories, a lot of interactions, a lot of conversations that Jesus had. Why are these few picked out? John tells you in chapter 20. I carefully, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I picked out some of these conversations, some of these teachings under the inspiration of the Spirit. I picked out the ones that are going to make the most difference to matter most to reveal what God wants to reveal. Why did God give the great sermon on the plan of salvation to a guy who was a moral exemplar, who was a guy who was a religious leader, who was a guy who crossed his T's and dotted his I's and as far as we know, had a good heart and came to see Jesus by night to make sure that no one missed the point that no one is born a Christian. Nicodemus, glad you're here. Let me me tell you something. You must be born again. Okay, that's where we started this series, okay? No one is born a Christian. All people by nature... Not skin color, not what country you came in, not what time in the history of the world you live in. All people by nature are deserving of wrath. Ephesians chapter two, if you want to note, if you're a note taker. Okay? Including godly people like Nicodemus. Okay? Now is that a happy message? No, but it's a worldview. I'm trying to start there. I think what you have in the story of Nicodemus is the vocabulary of the gospel. Apart from the great love of God for the world, listen, no one would be saved. Is that your point? Is that your worldview? Okay. No one, would, now, yet, now let me, let me, let me let's, let's climb back up the ladder now. Okay? Yet, condemnation, are you, the word used twice in this passage, is not God's purpose. It, he had to say that to make sure you didn't miss it. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Condemnation is God's not purpose. It's just the solemn, negative result of light when it comes into the world. That's, the, that's why. Sometimes you might say we feel it more acutely, the darkness when the light comes into the world, right? That's what John is trying to say. Now, if this was the only point of the gospel message, maybe some churches do this, or maybe this is how you heard it, you know, and it's why you weren't in church for a season in your life or your friends aren't today. If this was the only point in the gospel message, that is, Jesus came to a lost and troubled world, it's not a very happy message, it would be kind of a downer, right? I mean, who wants to come to church to hear that? That Jesus came to a lost and broken world. But on the other hand, I would suggest to you that it's, it's very useful, right? It's a very useful truth, if you think about it. Because it helps you understand, number one, why the way the world is the way that it is. You say, I'm sick and tired of living in a world that's at war with itself, a world that's in constant conflict, a world that it's, you know, if it's one international crisis or personal crisis after the other, that's why. It not only helps you understand that Jesus came into the, to, to a lost and troubled world from day one, right? He came in on a rescue mission, Galatians chapter 1, if you want a, a, a note taker. It's a rescue mission but it helps you, I'd say it's a useful piece of information because it helps me understand, one, why the world is the way it is, number two, why your life, Christian even, is the way it is. What do I mean by that? Your imperfect health, your imperfect marriage, sometimes your imperfect fill-in-the-blank, okay? Nobody is living the life that God originally intended when he created humanity, not a single person. Not a single person. Jesus came to a lost and troubled world. Okay. Contrary to what you sometimes hear on television, by that I mean you know, Christian television, so to speak, Christianity does not promise you or me or anybody a trouble-free life. That's a lie. And that's why some people aren't here today. Because they say, well, why do I want a God, you know, the world's broken, it's God's fault. Christianity is not, if you wanted wanted a trouble-free life, you'd have to leave the world, right? You have to get on a... Rock and get out of here, okay? That's the only way you're going to have a trouble-free life. What Christianity does promise you is a Savior who has experienced the worst of trouble that this world can throw at you, I'd throw at anybody, who has overcome it and who says, in union with me, if you're open to it, whoever believes in him, you've got to admit it's up to you, he can walk through this trouble world with you. John 16. "In this world, you will have trouble. I'm, I'm so glad Jesus Christ is, it tells the truth. Right? Jesus Christ didn't preach the prosperity gospel, if you even know what that means. In this world, you will have trouble. Okay, this was 101. This was, this was you know, the very, one of his very first conversations with this band of friends who would become the early church. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. And if you're in union with me, Eternal life, everlasting life is not the thing you get at the end of the line. It's what you get in earnest as a first deposit the day you open your life to Jesus Christ. You get that eternal life now. You get in a manner of speaking the person of Jesus in your life and with your life. As the great prophet Isaiah says, I will walk, you know, the flames will not Overwhelm you. The waters will not overtake you. You'll still walk through the fire in life. You'll still walk through heavy waters in life. You will not be a troubled, free life. But I will be with you, for I am the Lord your God. And I've been there. Tim Keller. The claim that Jesus Christ is God also gives us the greatest possible hope. This means that our world is not all there is. That there is life and love after death. That that evil and suffering will one day end. And it means not just hope for the world despite all its unending problems, but hope for you and me despite all our unending failings. Okay. Jesus came to a lost and troubled world. Second thing, close this sermon out, this series out. The application, or excuse me, the appearance of light precipitates a crisis. It's really the heart of this passage in a sense. The appearance of light precipitates a crisis. It's in response to the darkness of the world that God's love so wonderfully shines, right? It's the diamond on the black velvet. It's light in a dark room. But here's the point, maybe the heart of this message. The coming of light forces a choice on every human being, right? I mean, in some sense, Jesus Christ came to give the greatest hope in the world. The gospel's the greatest. It's, 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 the, it's the wonder. It's the diamond of history. But it, but, it, but it forces a decision. That's what John is trying to say to Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, whoever lives by the truth, do you live by the truth? Nicodemus would say, yes. He devoted his life to the truth. But he said, say, listen, whoever lives by the truth must come into the light. It's not a one-time thing. Christianity is not a transaction, right? I mean, there are transactions that happen, prayers and, and moments. But Christianity is a way of life, and it's a way of life of being exposed to the truth, living by the truth, and being willing as the lights get brighter and sharper to say, come this way. He who lives by the truth, she who lives by the truth, comes into light. Are you coming into the light? The appearance of light precipitates a crisis. A crisis. This is a painful, if you're not a Christian here today or your friends, you're thinking about your friends, it's a painful preliminary step for finding salvation. Christianity is about all, the gospel is all about what God has done for us. It's, a, it's free, it's God's grace. But when you decide to be a Christian, okay, it's going to change your whole life, okay? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a game changer. So a lot of people maybe who, who say, well, I tried that, it didn't work. Well, you didn't try it then. You, 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 you didn't really get the whole thing. It's a painful preliminary step for finding salvation. Nicodemus was a good guy. He wasn't, a, as far as I know, a drug addict, a, a criminal. He wasn't this sort of you know, rebel. He was a... Insider. He was faithful. He was devoted. Jesus still said, "Number one, nobody's born a Christian. Number two, if you want to live by the truth, you're going to have to come into the light." There's there's another guy, um, another story, kind of a parallel story. If you're a note taker, Luke 17. Nicodemus is a guy who comes to Jesus tonight, showing his genuine sincerity. He says, I know you come from God, I care, I'm a religious leader. I'm coming to you. Jesus didn't ask Nicodemus to visit him. So he had this sincerity. He comes and they have this conversation. Another guy, parallel story, it's this rich guy. You see, all, this, all we know about doesn't even know his name. He's a ruler. He comes to Jesus, but we know he's very wealthy. So you might say, Nicodemus is this religious exemplar. Uh, Luke 17 is, you might call him in our day, a very wealthy, good, you know, well-to-do businessman. okay, Very well-to-do, wealthy businessman. But he too comes to Jesus and he says, listen, just like Nicodemus, I sense there's good things about you. Master, he doesn't know he's the son of God. Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he wasn't asking about going to heaven when he died. Those are our, you know, uh, overlays in the course of history that's not what these guys were asked they were talking about a quality of life we might call it the the everlasting life is the life of the new era coming into the present day it's the fruits of the spirit it's the kingdom of God where what God wants done is done his power in our lives what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus says this takes him completely at face value as he takes you at face value he says listen you know the commandments. He says this, he figures this guy's a good Jewish uh, man, right? Comes to Jesus, thought Jesus was a rabbi. He says, you know the commandments. The, the guy doesn't answer. You assume he shakes his head. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not murder. Honor your mother and father and all will be well. So Jesus says to him. And, he, and, and then um, this man says this, and I, I believe he means it. All these things I've kept since I was a little boy. I grew up in a good family. My parents taught me well. I've kept all the Jesus said, good job. Only, if only the story ended there. <laughs> he that wants to live by the truth must come into the light, Nicodemus. He said, listen, Jesus said, just one thing you lack. Now, I put myself in that story. I think, oh, I, if I can say I've not committed adultery, I've not committed murder, I honor my mother father, he probably wants me to go run an errand for him. You know? There's just one thing that you lack. What is it? Go sell everything you have. He's very wealthy and give it to the poor, and then come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Wow. He didn't see that one coming. And this is what I'm trying to say to you guys. Whether you're a non-Christian who's been fiddling around with, you know, excuses, you know, let me tell you the ultimate impasse here, the struggle here. The appearance of light precipitates a crisis. Listen, it's not primarily an intellectual crisis. Of course, we need to get our intellect involved. But a lot of us stay at that level because we, we, we want to play. I'm not talking about necessarily people in this room, but our friends, maybe it's you. You know, we, we're not really interested in the truth. We want to debunk this and debunk that. But the real crisis here, it's a moral crisis. And the moral, that's why it says they loved darkness, they hated light. Okay. God says, listen to Nicodemus, come closer. He says to the rich young ruler, go sell everything you have. No, he didn't say that to anybody else. As far as I know, the gospel, I've never seen anywhere else except Luke 17 where the gospel says, go sell everything you have. I, I never did that. I'm a Christian. Why not? Because as you, become, as you, as you be, continue on your life as a Christ follower, what God is going to say to you What he's gonna say to David, the gospel for David is not the gospel for Rob. The gospel for Ken is not the gospel for Rob. That's not how it works. Because God says to this man, he says, listen, I know you, I'm the king of the universe. I am light, it's a metaphor, but I'm coming into your life. Men love darkness rather than light. It's part of being a human nature. We are all deserving of wrath. Our nature is corrupted. Listen, we don't just live in dirty water. Dirty water lives in us. It's a worldview. It's a worldview. But God comes in and says, listen, let me help you, right? And he says to this man, let me tell you what's standing in your way. Do you, are you serious? Are you honest? Do you have integrity? Or are you just playing a game? Do you really want everlasting life? Do you want the quality of life? Yes, I do. Then let me tell you what your problem is. And I'm just saying this to you. It's not to your neighbor. It's not to your friend. It's not to the person over there. For you, go sell everything you have. Because in your case, that's what's keeping you away from eternal life, everlasting life, the quality of life that you're looking for. And the question is, do you have the honesty, the integrity? Do I have the honesty, the integrity, and the courage? He or she, whoever lives by the truth, comes into the light. Now watch how it ends. So that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That's a very simple and direct way to say, listen, if I make that choice, and sometimes it's a painful choice, often it's a painful choice to say, yes, I'm gonna come into, do you think that, what did it say about the rich young ruler? Jesus looked at him, Luke 17, after he said that, he was very sad because he had great wealth. Boom, it, was, it, was, it felt like a, a stab to the heart. Even though it was a life giving piece of advice, that's what it felt like. If you want to come into the light, it's going to be painful. But Jesus doesn't say that to hurt you or to hurt me. So some people think that's why you have to have a right worldview. He says that to free you of your pride, of your fear, of your shame, or whatever other thing is holding you back from the thing that you say you want, which is a quality of life. It's called everlasting life. When we, let, me, let me say a few words. I said, I said to you a minute ago, the Nicodemus story sets the vocabulary for the gospel. When we ask, or you ask, when we, when we, when we ask, we get forgiveness now. I believe that with all my heart. If that wasn't true, I wouldn't be a Christian. If you come to a place you just understand that you're a sinner and you, and you realize that you can't save yourself, religion can't save you. If you ask for forgiveness, you get it now. Right? Thief on the cross, right? That guy was an hour away from, from eternity. Lord, have mercy on me, done. See you in paradise. If you ask, you get forgiveness now. but you may not get your sufferings removed now the rich young ruler Nicodemus they didn't feel so hot after their encounter with Jesus why as one great mind said writer said because while sin always blocks our relationship with God suffering often deepens it right you're going to get your forgiveness you'll have forgiveness now if you're sincere But God will remove your sin in a manner of speaking because it stands between you and a relationship with him. But he may not remove your suffering because suffering often deepens your relationship with God. Am I making sense? But see, that's a choice that you need to make. The appearance of light precipitates a crisis. Whether you're a non-Christian who's fiddling around or asking really serious questions about what does it mean to be a Christian and you're realizing, even though you want to say it out loud, the more I talk to my friend, the more I read the Bible, the more I listen to that, I realize I love darkness rather than light. I realize that there's, the world is not only in trouble, there's not only pollution in the world, there's pollution in my heart. It's okay, God knows. He died for your sin. He's already taken care of it, if you have eyes to see it. He that lives by the truth comes into the light. It's true for Christians too. I listened to just... This week, just randomly, maybe it was last week, uh, uh, within the last two weeks, an old recording. It was a podcast, but I think it was a cassette recording. What's a cassette, right? (laughs) But a cassette recording of um, Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of a missionary, her and her four missionary families. So there were five men. Her husband and four other men were were, um, um, killed, murdered, uh, speared to death. In Ecuador, India, in January of 1956. Horrible story. Some of you know it. Uh, and um, what happened? What I'd never heard. I'd read the story. I read her book. Uh, it's, it was a powerful story. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Through Gates of Splendor is the name of the book when she wrote a few. But I, what I'd never heard before, if I ha- or if I did, I forgot it. She she was talking about in this podcast. Um, about the time she went back and met the two men that had committed this crime. Met them, you know, they were ministering, she went back, she lived there for another two years, and she sat and had an interview with both of these men who had killed these five missionaries, and she went in detail, at least in this podcast, to talk about it, and it was, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. In other words, in her mind, you know, the undoing project, what we all try to do is we make sense out of things that are hard. And what she said to herself is, it happened over, it in a moment. You know, they didn't even see it coming. As it turned out, that wasn't how it happened. It was a long, grueling fight for their lives. And I thought to myself, listening to that, how horrible. This poor woman, she was 29 years old. She had a 10-month-old. She had given her life to Christ. She came to give it all. She'd done all this work of preparation. She she wasn't on a vacation. She had given her life, and this is what she gets in return. Not only did she lose her husband overnight in this horrible thing, killed by the people they'd come to reach, but now she hears this, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, God, why did you let that happen, and why did she have to hear about it? But I heard that just two weeks ago and I know the rest of the story. We don't often know that. I don't know the rest of the story of your life. I don't know the rest of the story of my own life. But I know the rest of the story of Elizabeth Elliot's life. She stayed there for two more years. And if, to make matters worse, she eventually didn't, wasn't, wasn't asked to leave, but there was a conflict between her and another missionary. And because she, maybe because she was a widow, maybe because she was a young mom, she's sent back to America. I'm thinking to myself, here this woman gives everything she has She's 32 years old. She's on a plane to go back to America. For what? For what? Right? God may not remove your sufferings because although sin blocks your relationship with God, suffering often deepens it. But the rest of the story is this. Elizabeth Elliot probably visited the mission field a time or two back over the course of the rest of her life, but she never went back to vocational missionary work per se. But what she did do was she took residence here in the United States, And she began to tell her story. And she wrote over 20 books. And what most people would tell you is that that woman who spent the next 45 years, she just died in 2015, largely speaking to college students, college students over the last 50 years, and telling them about what it means to walk with Christ, telling them that it's worth giving their life to Christ, telling them about how God had transformed her suffering into something else, and many people would tell you that she's probably a singular influence, she's probably had more, her testimony had more influence on people like me, I'm talking about people who made a commitment to be, wanted to be in in vocational ministry, more, more particularly, missionaries. That one voice had more influence on sending people to make commitments to be in the gospel ministry than probably any other person in the second half of the twentieth century. But see, she had a decision to make. The appearance of light precipitates a crisis. He that he or she that wants to live, whoever wants to live by the truth, has to come into the light, and it's a painful process at times. God will re- give you forgiveness now, but he may not remove your suffering because if you have an attitude of submission and belief in the one who's on the other end of that relationship, life changing in Jesus, he'll transform your suffering into something else. He'll drive you deeper into God. Amen? Amen? Okay, that's the point. Same for non-Christians as well. Jesus came to a lost and troubled world. The appearance of life precipitates a crisis last Just my advice for this whole series, my encouragement: let your light shine before others. Okay, let your light shine before. Jesus famously said, "You, many of you know this." It's his probably his first sermon, at least public sermon, to his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine. Right, you are the light of the world, and he gives this metaphor. Right. A light, a light if, you, if you're a light, you don't put a lamp and put it under a, a, under a bowl. I mean, it's such a basic metaphor. So listen, he said, that's not what you do. If you have a light, you put it on a stand, then it lights up the whole room. Oh, see, that's a simple metaphor. He says, that's you. You are the light of the world. So let your light shine so that all of the world around you can see because the world's dark. That's a worldview. Jesus came to a dark and troubled world. So let your light shine. For what purpose? So that people can see the light and through your good deeds, they will will honor God. They will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen to this first Summary for the whole series. Paul speaking to his congregation or one of them, Philippians. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. I love this. The realist like Jesus Do everything without grumbling. This is his opening sermon. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Watch this. So that you might become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. See, Paul was a realist. He had a biblical worldview. Watch this. Then, then, you might say, and only then, will you shine among them like stars in the sky. You want to make a difference with your family, your neighbors, your friend, your uncle, your your golfing buddies, your drinking buddies? I don't know if you drink, but you know what I'm saying. Whatever the case may be, okay? You want to shine like a light in a dark world. Do you even believe that the world's dark? Is that your worldview? Okay? Then you will shine like a stars in the sky, like a diamond on a piece of black velvet. That's you, that's me. But here's the thing about it. You might say, well, I, I'm, that's, I'm not that important. I've got too many problems. It's not about you. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Listen carefully, Paul's answering the objection, or Jesus is, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That's Bible language saying, listen, if I'm a shining light to anybody, they're going to know this has to be coming from something other than this guy. The work that's happened in this guy's life, this girl's life, this man's life, this woman's life, it's not about them. They're not some superior person. They're not some, you know, um, you know, holy roller kind of, you know, I'm better than you. No, 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 they say, listen, I know this person, or I've got to know this person, and God has done, it's plain to me, they plainly see that what has been done in their life is an act of God. That's evangelism, the right kind. Three things we're done pieces of encouragement from your pastor if you really want to be a gospel witness in this world number one stop complaining it doesn't look good on you guess what your friends your neighbors you don't even be right in half the things you say it doesn't look good on you you're, you're, there's a bigger there's a bigger um game being played and you're down here playing in pop warner When you're invited to play in the Super Bowl, what are you doing? Who cares? Stop complaining. It doesn't look good on you. The world's broken in a thousand ways. Get over it. Because we have, uh, the eye is not seen, the ear is not heard, neither is it entered into the heart of men and women, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Listen, what God has planned for you, you don't have the imagination to think about it. It's beyond your wildest dream, your largest imagination. Psalm 16, there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. What does that mean? I don't have a clue. But that sounds pretty good. So quit claiming about what's going what's not happening in this world. It doesn't look good on you. Second, start praying or praying more. If 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 every Christian is a miracle, then prayer is the most important thing you and I can do for your lost friends, neighbors, cousins, etc. Start stop complaining and stop praying more. Do you do it? You have a short list, we talked about this months ago. You pray for people that are lost, spiritually lost. Last, get busy doing good, right? In the same way, let your light shine before others, it's a metaphor, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. I love this, I probably quoted this before, but it's such a great way to end. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this. Someone asked him a question. They said, if you knew tomorrow was the end of the world, what would you do? How many ever asked that question? He said, I'd plant an apple tree. I'd plant an apple tree. That's what I'd do. I'm not going to go out and complain. I'm not going to put a sandwich board on. I'm not going to go curse the darkness. I'm going to go plant an apple tree. In other words, I'm going to leave tomorrow to God, and I'm going to do some good up until the last breath that I have so people can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this message. Thank you for this congregation. I'm so honored to be their pastor and to be with uh, us all here today. Lord, we just pray you would help us, Lord. Help us to um, check our hearts, check our minds, and and to um, be open, Lord, to the the appearance of light that precipitates a crisis. Help us to trust the person at the other end of this relationship who is Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Son of God, who says to me, come, come, come into the light, come further, go sell everything you have. Whatever you say, Lord, help us to do it while we have time that we might, in our transformations, become like stars shining in a dark world.